You know, it's true that often this word sustainability has been hijacked by the word sort of green and consume green. What came out of this research that we've been conducting was that there are a myriad of issues that are important to people much more than green. Things like community connection and buying local, supporting locally based business, a balanced life, a higher purpose in life is meaningful to me. And what's interesting about local is that it's one of those few sustainability issues that is consistently high and increasing across multiple consumer groups. Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinsing. This is episode 620. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 850 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Farm Grow Flowers. Farm Grow Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $10 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgrowflowers.com. And thank you to Details Flowers Software, a platform specifically designed to help florists and designers do more and earn more. With an elegant and easy-to-use system, Details improves profitability, productivity, and organization for floral businesses of all shapes and sizes. Grow your bottom line through professional proposals and confident pricing with Details all in one platform. All friends of the Slow Flowers podcast will receive a seven-day free trial of Details Flowers software. Learn more at detailsflowers.com. Today is a red-letter day. It is the 10th anniversary of the Slow Flowers podcast. I launched the first-ever podcast about flowers on July 23rd, 2013 with episode 100. Little did we know that this audio storytelling project, it was called internet radio back then, that it would take off and resonate with so many listeners. Commemorating our 10-year mark is so significant. It recognizes that the Slow Flowers podcast is the longest continually running podcast in the floral design and flower farming space. We invite you to help us celebrate by sharing your stories of how the Slow Flowers podcast has been an inspiring companion to you over the years. Post or send us a video tagged hashtag Slow Flowers podcast, and we may feature you in our Slow Flowers social media feed this coming month. And we're having a contest. Check out our Instagram stories at Slowflower Society, which we will run for the next 10 weeks. You could win one of two priceless prizes. We'll select two winners among eligible entrants. One will win a featured guest spot on a future episode of the Slowflowers podcast, and one will win a chance to co-host an upcoming monthly Slowflowers member meetup. We'll post the details on social media for you to follow along and participate. 
So I've spent several weeks looking back over the 520 episodes we've produced in the past decade, trying to find a good way to honor our expert guests and their stories. Starting today, for the next 10 weeks, we will highlight one episode from each year of the past decade and bring the best of the Slothars podcast to you. If you're a longtime listener, you might recognize these flower folks. If you're new to the Slothars podcast, I'm excited to introduce them to you for the first time. Today, we're starting with episode 100, our very first episode. It's a fitting place to begin our retrospective. First, in part one of this podcast, you'll hear from Kirsten DeWest. She was, at the time, CEO and founder of Conscientious Innovation, a market research and consulting firm known for its early embrace of the sustainable marketplace, which Kirsten led from 2004 to 2018. As I mentioned in the original episode, I met Kirsten in 2011 when we were seated at adjacent tables in a restaurant at the SeaTac International Airport. We struck up a conversation and the beginnings of a friendship over the course of one hour before we both had to race to our respective flights. Later, I invited Kirsten to talk about her research into consumer attitudes regarding sustainability as the keynote speaker for the Garden Writers Association Annual Symposium in 2011, now known as GardenCom International. In the podcast, Kirsten and I discussed the research she conducted for her former company. It was called The Shift Report, an omnibus study of 5,000 consumers in North America. What jumped out to me in this report was the idea of local, local values surpassing other topics that you might have considered would rank higher on consumers' sustainability checklists, such as organic or global warming. Listen as Kirsten and I discussed this fascinating research and hear how insightful and prescient it was 10 years ago, because it's equally important today. In part two of this podcast, join my conversation with veteran organic flower farmer Joan Thorndike, owner of La Mera Gardens in Talent, Oregon, which is near Ashland. We talked about what local means to Joan's floral customers while we were taking a walk from Joan's home to the farmer's market in downtown Ashland. Many of you were introduced to Joan in the grower's wisdom section of the 50-mile bouquet. In that short section, Joan's articulate, insightful perspective resonated with me. She is a grower ecologist. Joan operates on a worldview that is highly inclusive and optimistic. My favorite quote from one of our original interviews goes like this. She says, when I sell my flowers, I believe I am appealing to my customers' deeply visceral desire to observe the cadence of nature. So let's jump right in and hear the encore of episode 100. I'm here on the line with Kirsten DeWest, founder of CI, Conscientious Innovation, a consultancy based in Vancouver, British Columbia. One of the things that's so exciting about what CI does is huge body of research called the CI Shift Study. And it's a report that I don't know how frequently it comes out, Kirsten, you can maybe tell me, but you have, you have a new report that I want to talk to you about. How often do you do this research? Well, thank you for having me, Deb. Uh, it's great to be here. So the shift report is really a multi-methodology, always in the field study. So we're consistently doing qualitative, cultural, and quantitative research, as I think what you're referring to. So every 18 months, we do a large 5,000-person general population study across the U.S., I think I've known of your study in the past, maybe when you spoke at the Garden Writers National Symposium in uh, 2010. And so this is the, the 
maybe the next or maybe two generations later, exactly. the 2012 data. Exactly. And what we've uh, decided to do this year is really um, share and and allow people to access some of the great shift report featured insights, we call them. And so that's what we are looking at um, is one of these reports specifically on local because it's such a huge and emerging issue. Well, let's talk about that. Um, I was really blown away by some of the numbers uh, and the contrast about what consumers uh, are telling you. I love this title of one of your slides, Local is a Lynchpin. Mm -hmm. So I think when I first met you, and you you told me you worked in the sustainability realm, I think my first reaction was, oh, she's going to tell me consumers attitudes about organic mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Um, all kinds of other things like fair trade or sustainability and, you know, work, workplace safety. But um, even back then, it, when you gave the keynote to garden writers, local was surprisingly bu- rising to the top of your, yeah. your numbers. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, it's true that often this word sustainability, as you mentioned, has been hijacked by the word sort of green and consume green. Um, but the reality is, is that nobody wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I want a, a green life today. You know, they want a sustainable, <laughs> conscious, connected, thriving life. And that's what we really need to understand if we're going to carve out opportunity for brands, for organizations, and for connecting with various stakeholders, consumers, employees, or other audiences. Um, We've got to understand what's truly meaningful to them. And what's interesting about local is that it's one of those few sustainability issues um, that we look at that is consistently high and increasing across multiple consumer groups. And so the way we look at it at CI is we go in and we say, you know, what's meaningful to you today? And please rate these issues as how important they are to you. Um, And what came out of this research that we've been conducting, the Shift Report, since 2005, was that there are a myriad of issues that are important to people much more than green. Things like community connection and um, buying local, supporting locally-based business, a balanced life, a higher purpose in life is meaningful to me. Yes, organic. Yes, climate change. But employee treatment, uh, fair trade, how the workers who make the things I make are treated. And so we could really see this holistic area of meaning about a sustainable life, not a green life. And what came out of that is this really powerful framework um, for uncovering opportunity for a brand, for an organization, for anyone engaging with a a particular audience um, was what we call consumers four pillars of sustainability. Because at the end of the day, it's not the word sustainability, it's underneath that the issues that are meaningful. And the reason I mention this is because local is really one of the few, if not only, sustainability issues that goes across all of consumers' four pillars of sustainability, which are social sustainability, personal, spiritual, and yes, environmental sustainability. And that is to answer your question about it, why it's so important and why we're seeing it's important cross multiple demographic groups is because it's really tapping all four boxes for people. And you know it's popular and it's getting the zeitgeist when those NGOs that have been holding their fists in the air going greenwashing, greenwashing, are now saying local washing, local washing, as as brands try and jump on the bandwagon and wrap themselves up in this movement. And so, when you, give me an example of what would be local washing. I have one I'm going to share with you, but I want to want to hear what maybe you've been shocked at and thought, "Wow, the audacity of these guys to 
try to claim they're local when they're really not? Yeah, well, you know, it's an interesting question because I think every global brand needs a local story and a local engagement, but how you package and serve it up has to be authentic and aligned with what is true to your brand and your business. So I think every organization has to connect with this, but how they do it is going to determine if it results in local washing or not. So, for example... You know, you now see brands such as Sitco um, or Lay's who are positioning themselves as local businesses. Now, that doesn't mean they can't have a local connection. So, for example, a campaign that came out of Lay's in the last, I think, 24 months was really about highlighting the local farmers um, that are making their potatoes, which actually does have some authenticity to it because when you look at that definition of local, which is another question people are asking, it is very much um, a pebble in the pond. So we did some specific research around how people define and interact with local. Um, and it really is that, I, what I said, pebble in the pond. You know, it starts with my mm-hmm. block, my community, you know, my state, my region, my country. And so there is truth to, to what Lays is trying to rally around, and it does connect with the audience. And we actually did see some movement in their brand reputation because of that. Um, but you also have, for example, Sitco, who started to position itself as a locally based business, or Starbucks, which came out with uh, an unbranded cafe to kind of take advantage of this local movement in the Seattle area. It was owned by Starbucks, but they didn't want to brand it Starbucks because they felt that that wouldn't take advantage of this local movement. It kind of blew up in their face. Um, so there's a few. <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Well, I, I, I have been appalled at a local natural grocery store in chain in the Seattle market, mm-hmm. uh, which w- uh, was bringing in mixed bouquets uh, with a label that said locally hand-tied in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And yes, and I thought this is, I, would, I didn't even think, know the term local washing, but to me it was certainly greenwashing because they were imported flowers mm-hmm. that some little, you know, sweatshop in South Seattle was, you know, putting a ribbon around and calling it hand-tied, and so that's where they could say it was locally hand-tied. I thought it was outrageous, and, uh, but consumers see that, and they don't know, and that's the problem, I think. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, on first blush, they are going to, you know, I think like anything when it's first coming into that, kind of cultural marketplace chatter on a significant level. Um, it's coming in because there is an openness and receptivity and interest to it, but if it's not done following those rules of engagement, which are authenticity, alignment, and when it comes to specifically to marketing, th- there's very specific rules that consumers want to see followed, which is be specific, be credible, and have an impact in my local community. So when you see a message like this, you know, hand-wrapped locally in the Pacific Northwest, there's really no credibility or specific backup to that. Mm-hmm. And so it will end up getting through to consumers and potentially flying in the face of the people who are kind of trying to package up and serve their brand around the local movement. And fly the local flag. And fly the local flag, exactly. So again, opportunity, and I think every organization, every brand locally or globally has to connect and align with this, but it's got to be done in a way that's authentic and aligned with what's true to their organization and to the audience that they're trying to connect with. So you alluded to the fact that there is a definition that you're working with about local. Uh, I'd be curious to hear what that is because I'm sure it's a moving target. 
Yeah, it's uh, you know we we did a lot of in-depth qualitative research around this specific question. So I'm going to answer it in two ways. So one way in a specific study that we did around local for the shift report was to understand this definition, and the definition really was that pebble in the pond approach that I mentioned okay. before. You know, starts with my block, my neighborhood, my city, my region, my state, my country, etc. Um, but then the other thing that's very interesting to know is that we went out into the field with the shift report in, in 2005. So we've been doing this quite a while and collecting data. We didn't even have at that point local on our agenda to understand. And what we've seen over the last, um, what is that, uh, eight years yeah. um, of research is that local has come out consistently in very specific areas. A, it's a sustainability issue I care about. It's really important to me. B, the second point is that if I want to know about the socially responsible behavior of brands whose products and services I buy, and we know that 69% of the average American consumer says, yes, I want to know what's going on behind closed doors, and I want to know what's up, um, buying, local, buy, buying at a locally based business or made locally is an indicator that this is a brand aligned with these meaningful values that connect with consumers today. So it's what we call almost an integrity brand indicator. It's, it's showing up as a signpost that I'm checking out as a consumer. And the third way that it's coming out is when we ask people, well, how are you seeking out information about these organizations? You say you want to know what's going on. 69% of you say, I want to know. How are you seeking that information? Is it TV? Is it print? Is it radio? Is that a point of sale? We see really high numbers around local messaging, and I want to know at that local business, that sort of local business level, where I'm buying the product. And so when you see something come out that strong across multiple areas, you know it's something you should pay attention to um, when you're trying to understand what's meaningful to your audience today and then align that accordingly with your brand. Wow. I'm just, I'm so excited to hear this because, of course, I really believe that the, what's going to save the American floral industry is that more consumers know where their flowers come from. So many don't. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And what I'm, and the, the thing that's kind of confusing and for consumers, I think, is there is a, there is that whole main street, main street movement, like support your local small business. Yes. And traditional flower shops or conventional flower shops consider themselves local businesses. They're main street, um, mom and pop hometown businesses, but they have somehow disconnected with their own sourcing philosophy. Right. So they're, yeah, I'm local, but I'm buying at the wholesaler all these cheap imported flowers and rearranging them and giving, selling them to my consumer under the local yeah. banner. So I've got to somehow try to figure out where that disconnect is. And I, I, I don't know if you've seen that in any, any other industry. I mean, it's, maybe it's unique just to, to flowers. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's interesting to think about the flower business and, and why that's happening and when we need to pay attention to that in that sector. So what we can see is that something, um, when we look at why people are, why and how people are syncing their attitudes with their actions, right? Because we need to acknowledge that there's a disconnect between what I say is meaningful to me and important today and how I'm acting every day in my lifestyle choices and purchase decisions. So the goal for uh, brands, be it the local store, the national retailer, the global retailer, is to close that gap, to help people fulfill that desire, to help me be a conscious consumer. So we see that done, that gap closer in areas where I'm already cherry picking, you know, where the barriers are lower. Um, for example, food. Food, home energy, and home cleaning tend to be the top three categories where people are aligning attitudes with actions. So where they're most likely to say, yes, I've already made 
sustainable and socially responsible lifestyle choices and purchase decisions. Now, what we can see is that when they start moving into other categories like home decorating, what's going on in my home environment, things like flowers and design are going to come up as important for them. But people need to go down those sort of lower hanging fruit, pardon the pun, if they're going to move into Mm -hmm. the flower sector. But you know, you made a really great point earlier when we were talking about like any category or any industry could have a Bangladesh kind of moment. And so the reality is, is whether it's flowers, food, or footwear, people want to know what's going on behind closed doors and they want the organizations, the brands, the retailers they connect with to help them align attitude and action. And that applies to the flower industry as much as it does any other category. So that's hopeful. I feel really encouraged by that, Kirsten, because it's you're kind of at the you're at the forefront. You're gaining this these insights from the consumers you research, which blows my mind that you're doing. You're questioning five thousand consumers. Mm -hmm. Um, You're hearing it, and then companies come to you, hopefully, to to (laughs) consult with you and to have you translate that those findings to something that's relevant to their own business decisions yeah, and practices. Exactly. <clears throat> so if you're listening out there, big box flower retailer, you know who to call. <laughs> well, you know what the great thing is, is that we've got such robust data that it really helps our clients feel comfortable about making decisions that are in line with their business objectives and goals. And us coming in and saying, here, here's what's meaningful to your consumers today, but also helping them fill the gap and close the gap between CSR, sustainability, between sales and marketing, because if you are a large retail organization, chances are right now you do have a, um, a chief sustainability officer or a chief responsibility officer, but then how do you package and serve that up to your sales team and to your marketing team? Everyone needs to be in aligned, and we need to help close that gap if we're going to end up at point of sale in the flower industry, presenting our consumers with a choice that's going to help them live the kind of life they want to live. And that makes me think that really you have to be in a, uh, working with the top levels of of uh, decision makers yeah. at these companies because it has to infuse every level of the company for everyone to get on board and, and buy into this. Yeah, absolutely. It does. It has to start with the top. Um, and, you know, typically there is conversation and alignment between sustainability, corporate responsibility, between marketing, between sales, and between innovation. And if it's not, we help facilitate that conversation and close the gap using really rigorous insights to do that and help uncover the opportunities for people. And, you know, you mentioned the phrase local is a linchpin that's in one of these um, shift report featured insights that we have on the website is that it really does go across consumer groups, you know, across age, across gender, across income groups. It's something that's important to such a diverse audience. So we're not just seeing sort of the elite, you know, higher income earner saying, uh, I'm going to buy local and support locally based business. We're seeing that come across the line with even those lower income consumers. Um, And so you see that come to life in different ways. Again, how does a retailer help their audience close the gap between attitude and action? So it really is across uh, a whole swath of the population. Gosh, that's great. That's so interesting. And and I I don't want to assume the wrong thing, but you, you did say that local as a kind of a concept or a belief 
is outpacing some of these other um, categories that you've researched. Is that that's correct? Right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely. So you know, when we look at, for example, buying local and supporting locally based business business and compare it directly to some of those sustainability issues that fall exclusively in the environmental sustainability pillar, we see always a gap where local is much higher in importance than those green-only issues. So local, because it falls as much in those social sustainability as it does maybe personal environmental sustainability pillar, is why it's so much higher. So, for example, we can see that even across people um, earning less than $40,000 a year, uh, 63% of them say that buying local and supporting locally-based business is very important versus 31% say buying organic products. Um, and so local is really connecting directly to me, um, and consumers feel and connect to that more than they do organic alone. And so, again, we're not saying one is better from the other. We're going to talk to other people about the scientists and the impact. But from a overall, if climate change is the initiative that people want to talk about, buying local and supporting locally-based business is a great strategy where the environment ends up being the end beneficiary anyway. That's a great example. And I would think that the lower income levels, the local choice has a lot to do with caring about keeping jobs local Mm -hmm. um, because they can relate to that. And I mean, we all obviously are concerned about keeping jobs local. So it it seems like to resonate with a lot of, a lot of different demographics. It resonates with a lot of different demographics and it also is resonating because it's connecting directly to what motivates people to make socially responsible and sustainable lifestyle choices and purchase decisions, which we have the data behind it. The insight from the data is self-serving generosity. Yes, I want to do, you know, contribute to what's better, better society, that altruism, but, you know, it impacts me directly is a very significant driver as well. So the idea to buy local and support locally based business also talks to that point you just made of keeping, keeping the money I'm spending in my local community and supporting jobs and engagement, et cetera. Thank you so much, Kirsten. I will um, talk to you soon. And those copies of the 50 Mob Okay and Slow Flowers are going to go in the mail to you to the right address today. I look forward to it. And if anyone would like to see those free data points on local that we've talked about um, in today's conversation, it's all available on the website and a great shift report featured insights we have on consumers and local. That's great, Kirsten. Thanks so much. And I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Deb. Take care. Bye. Next, I want to share my conversation with Joan Thorndike. I was visiting uh, Ashland, Oregon recently on a photo shoot for Country Gardens magazine, and I got to stay with Joan and her family. And uh, we actually recorded this uh, short interview while walking from her house to the Saturday Farmer's Market in downtown Ashland, where her flowers were sold in a booth and her friends at Fry Family Farms were uh, marketing bouquets of, of mixed organic flowers. And I'll have photos of that on the site. So let me share my conversation with Joan. You'll hear us panting a little bit because we're walking at a brisk pace. Okay, so I'm here with Joan Thorndike of La Mera Gardens, and we're taking a stroll through the beautiful town of Ashland, where she lives, to the farmer's market. Hi, Joan. Oh, hi, Deborah. <laughs> Welcome to Ashland. This is Lithia Park that we're walking through. Oh, my gosh, it's beautiful. We're going to cut through the park. Yes, we are. So, Joan, we have so much to talk about, but um, one of the things I want you to tell me is your whole take on what's happening with the local flower, the idea of local flowers, and why your customers... 
uh, I mean, it's just secondhand for, it's second nature for them. They, you've trained them for more than a decade to believe that that's important, right? Um, well, I've believed in local flowers for 21 years because that's how long I've been farming them. But um, I've worked all those years at convincing people, A, to want flowers, which is the most important part. You have so much disposable income in your life and many, many options in the United States on a way to spend it. So I like to convince people that there's nothing like the element of surprise that a flower will, the purchase of a flower will bring you. And that flowers are good for you, that they enhance your, your living and your health. Um, that you, but you have to, you know, help people reach it's, that conclusion. It's like an intentional choice then. Yes, yes. And I very much appreciate um, people who do buy flowers. There's a part of my business that's delivering flowers to individual homes. And I have great admiration for those people who've been doing it for over 10 years every Thursday, receiving a bucket where every year it's more expensive to get that bucket. We're close to $50 now, which for our area is quite steep. That's $50 a week that a family is choosing to spend on flowers. Right. That's a dinner out or a bottle of wine or something. Or an object, a hard good. Um, And you're able to do this how many months of the year? um, From, well, we do home deliveries from home and restaurant deliveries from April through mid-October. Mid-April to mid-October. And you're... um, you're, you have such a sense of place here in Ashland and in this valley. And do you think that's part of the fact that they know you're from here and your flowers are from here? Um, I don't think it had any, you know, we, we're not only from here, but we're certified organic growers. And I chose right from the start to wholesale to florists. I read, I was given as a gift, sorry about the divergence, but I was given as a gift Alan Armitage's book, on specialty cut flowers, and I opened the, the book, and the first, the introduction was about growing cut flowers in the United States, and that it was very important if growers were going to make their mark, that we be a unified front, that we have standards, that we not be random about how we sell flowers, that a bunch is a counted stems bunch, and it isn't, we'll throw in a couple more in case there was a bad one in there. No, make all stems good stems, and make it easy for the florist to do the math, and sell a good product, understand shelf life, understand length of stem, and so on. And that was so enlightening to me, and I thought the only people who are going to hold my hands to the fire on that are going to be the florists, so that I want them to be my, my customers. Because they're, they're sort of also trying to adhere to quality standards for their customers. Sure, because they feel the brunt of a complaint. If, if I sell a product that is buggy or short-lived or any number of other problems that they might have, it's, they're the face of that flower. The customer's going to come to them and say, this thing crawled out of my flower. No. <laughs> But you, you really have cultivated a very deep trust-based relationships with your floral design, either florist or independent floral design clients, right? 
Yes, yes. And I'd say it's it was so wonderful. The first year I started selling to them, they decided to take a leap and trust me. Um, you know, some flower shops, one flower shop in particular, was very clear saying, you deliver flowers to us, we're going to put a white tablecloth out and put your flowers on it, see what comes out. Because this <laughs> business of organic flowers was really a novelty for them. And I'd say for 15 years, if, they, if anyone asked me the question, why organic, we don't eat them. Why organic? Why bother? I'd say it's about... Um, it's about my employees and myself and, and our children who walk on that land. Uh, you know, I, I feel secure about pregnant people working there, about little kids running around, older, younger. And it's about stewardship of the land. Um, we do live in a valley where we care about our land. And so that was just no-brainer, no question. And explaining... Good morning explaining why even if you don't eat it it's important but you know that never resonated with any force they couldn't care less what turned the tide was an organization that was formed here in this in the rogue valley it's called thrive t-h-r-i-v-e um by local by rogue we are the rogue river valley right and um they started from a tiny idea to really encouraging the buying public to know who their local businesses are. And they started with food, food producers. And slowly and very deliberately, they've been growing into other businesses, auto paint shops. And I mean, the most incredible things, you know, um, my husband's family owns a steel fabrication business. It's called Medford Fabrication. They've been in business for 75 years. It had never, that most of the work they do goes somewhere else, goes to Africa or, you know, goes to New Guinea. Oh, wow. <laughs> but Medford Fabrication is, employs all local people, residents of the valley, and is a, one of the most philanthropic family-run businesses in the Rogue Valley. Well, that's not something that people know. And so Thrive went to Medford Fabrication and said, all right, so you don't sell here, but you are a local business right. and you are a driving engine here. You're creating jobs and keeping... Yeah. a member of Thrive, of Buy Local, Buy Rogue, because the general public needs to know who you are. Well, so we love Thrive and I'll do anything to help them. You know, they... They, they struggle, of course, to make ends meet, and it's a, they work out of a tiny office, and they're always asking for stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> Which, this, this is all kind of building that momentum yes. of... And it works for me. They, when they have, I don't know, house parties to teach people about Thrive, or they recently had a big beer fest, and they wanted to put all green arrangements on all the tables. Yeah, sure, I'll give you all those flowers. That's fine, because you're doing it for all of us. So it's all of this makes it underscores that whole thing we've been discussing all morning about storytelling, and <clears throat> turning a flower from a just a, a generic commodity to something that has this amazing narrative. And just being in the fields with you yesterday, every single one of those um, beautiful blooms we looked at, like the roses and the dahlias, everything had a story. You've done 
extensive research to choose the right varieties. And you know who bred those flowers. And so you share all that information with your florist. I do. And um, we learn from each other that way. You know, they teach me how they use it. And I spy around in the coolers and I see things like green tick. And I say, okay, well, I can't, at this point, I can't afford the tissue culture. It's so hard to get. And why do people play hardball like that? <laughs> but I could cut green sweet William. Why not? It fulfill. Right. It's not the same, but it fulfills the same purpose. So you're kind of um, following the fashion trends. Yes. And then oh, you have finding to. your own way to fulfill that demand. You have to. And then what you hope for is that you start a trend. You know, it's like Monarda. Well, nobody grew Monarda. So we started growing Monarda. And then normally, bee balm, you cut it when its little fireworks are all sticking out. And then I thought, well, what if we cut it in bud? Because, again, shelf life. Right. Um, Oh, but look at that. It's a totally new look. It's something completely different. It's very graphic. In an arrangement. So now people buy it. That's two phases we can sell it at. We can sell it in bud. Or we can sell it with the little fireworks. That's two products out of the same plant. <laughs> and that's you being experimental. Yes, and, and testing, you know. And some things definitely don't fly. But hypericum, we used to wait for the hypericum bushes, of which we have thousands of them, to produce a berry. And then I started seeing these tight little buds. They're like little gold nuggets in the middle of the plant. I said, okay, let's start cutting hypericum and bud, see if this works. And, of course... It did start selling, but it also would open in my truck from bud to the little explosion uh-huh. of flower. Uh-huh. And then people were drawn to that, so I'd sell a few in bud, a few with the flower. And then when the seeds come on, there was both. And that gave me an edge over the commodity that gets shipped. Because Which you is can't, only going to be one look. Right. Yeah. And well, and you can't, the little floret uh, destroys in a box. When being jostled yes. around. And so then people started saying, oh, this is a local hypericum because it has a few little flowers in it. <laughs> Same with status. It's selling itself <clears throat> for you. Yes. But you have to try it all, you know. And um, the same thing with status. Status, talk about a commodity. Well, people can tell a local status because inside the colored bloom, there's a little white flower. Right, I've seen that. And if it's in a box, it falls off. But when it's local, that little flower is in the middle of the purple, you know. And it it creates this pretty contrast. Yes, it has a botanic name to all those parts. Right, right. That's so cool. It's a sign of, oh, this is really fresh status. So the farmer has to really educate the customer. And the thing that I was most enchanted about when I met you is that you do, you do education every single day. Every interaction with a customer, be it a bride or someone at the flower shop, you're teaching them why your flowers are so special. And I don't know, it's not like you have to justify the price, but you are helping them understand that you're trying to make a living wage growing flowers, and this isn't some little hobby. Well, yes, I think that's touching on lots of important things. One is there are a lot of hobby farmers, there are a lot of hobby vintners, and so and that's fine. That's fine. Do it. Do you make our world better? But play fair, because the rest of us who need to pay, make payroll, make our land payments, we we need to make an income. So if you're selling a bouquet, a huge bouquet at market for three dollars, and the least I can sell is eight. I need to talk to you, and you need to listen to me, please. 
<clears throat> then we're all, you know, we're fair. Have you had that situation? Oh, yes. Yeah, we have. And there's one market that we just have lost it totally. And so we gave up and we just take a few bouquets to... Um, because we have other outlets that mm-hmm. we can go to. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's that. And then, um, yes, the florists learn from me, but I learn from them too because I listen to what are you using this for? What do you need this for? How can I help you buy local, a local flower to fill that need? Brilliant. Uh, you know, how to reduce that farmy look. Well, and what's really important, if I may just say, yeah. I never want to make an excuse for a product like I don't want to say well but it's organic right that's the word that'll kill the movement you have to be as good if not much better than the quote-unquote conventional or the quote-unquote from a wholesaler in some other place they have to see every attribute as um, an asset and um, and and genuine and real with no excuses well and if it's if they can use the organic labeling uh, as their own marketing message, then it makes them have right. a distinctive from their And only now are they starting to pick up on that. There's a flower shop out in Eagle Point here, which is a much more impoverished area of this valley. And when I start bringing my truck over there, they go down to the little local printer that's down at the other end of the little shopping mall, and they have a big banner printed, which they put up on their window, it says our local organic flowers are in. Oh. And they keep it up all oh, summer. That must just warm your heart. It makes me so happy. so much for joining me today. And here's a postscript about my guests. Kirsten DeWest is still leading marketing for mission-driven organizations. In 2018, she joined Lululemon as the VP of Global Brand Management and Strategy. Three years later, she joined Alpha Foods as Chief Marketing Officer. And most recently, I heard from Kirsten that she's off to a new adventure in Paris. So best wishes to her. Joan Thorndike is still pumping out uncommonly beautiful organic flowers at La Mera Gardens. Last year, we featured Joan as a Slow Flowers hero in the fall 2022 issue of Slow Flowers Journal. So check out our show notes to find the free PDF that you can download and read that beautiful article. And don't forget to check our Instagram stories for invitations to enter our giveaway promotions to celebrate our 10th anniversary of the Slow Flowers podcast. Thank you to CalFlowers, the leading floral trade association in California, providing valuable transportation and other benefits to flower growers and the entire floral supply chain in California and 48 other states. The association is a leader in bringing fresh cut flowers to the U.S. market and in promoting the benefits of flowers to new generations of American consumers. Learn more at CAFGS.org. And thank you to Store It Cold, creators of the revolutionary CoolBot, a popular solution for flower farmers, studio florists, and farmer florists. Save thousands when you build your own walk-in cooler with the CoolBot and an air conditioner. And if you don't have time to build your own, they also have turnkey units available. Learn more at storeitcold.com. I love all this floral goodness, and I am so happy you joined me today. The Slow Flowers Podcast is a member-supported endeavor downloaded more than one million times by listeners like you. 
Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show or our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowerssociety.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of The Slow Flowers Show and The Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more Slow Flowers on the table, one stem, one vase at a time. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.